Let's talk about Drew Barrymore, not the song by SZA, the actor. And we're also talking Adam Sand. I'm taking, I'm taking, I'm taking. Lur, I almost said Sandra. <laughs> We're talking Adam Sandler and, of course, the gorgeous, gorgeous penguins that exist in that movie. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices, episode 50. Oh, my goodness, we're here. There's the party sounders, and I, I, the minion sounders, post-production me is having a freaking time mixing this all in. I'm so sorry. You're going to have to deal with this. I am your host, Brandon King, alongside my wonderful co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, tell the people the amazing plans that we've uh, we planned well in advance for this. Episode 50, we're coming in with the big guns, and we are talking about our favorite movie titles, okay? I presented this idea to Brandon weeks in advance, months. We thought about this before we even originated the pod, and I said, Brandon, we are going to have our favorite movie titles with the word or number, depending on where you live and what your cultural background is, 50 in the title. Here's the problem. There aren't that many movies with 50 in the title. I mean, if you're listening to this pod, I'm sure you're already thinking of one of them. And I have it written down. And I have a second answer that's kind of a cop-out. But for the sake of fun, we're going to go ahead and talk about uh one, two, the few that we have written down for our favorite movie titles or our notable movie titles that have 50 in their title. So, Brandon, say the first. I know we both have it. What is it? For me, it was 50-50. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, okay, good. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But you go ahead and talk to us about 50-50 and inform me on what kind of excellence awaits uh, people who have never seen that film. Uh, 50-50 is from Jonathan Levine, who, fun fact, was supposed to do Spider-Man before he uh, got swatched out for John Watts. 50-50 is Joseph Gordon-Levitt and also Seth Rogen. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character develops uh, severe cancer, and Seth Rogen is his best friend trying to console him through the whole thing. Uh, it's beautiful, it's sweet, it's genuinely hilarious, and it's one of those perfect balances of like a mid-budget comedy drama that we don't really see much anymore, and I think it's just super terrific, and I hope people can check it out. This is the one where I think the cover is Joseph Gordon-Levitt shaving his head, yeah? Yes, that's the one. That is 50-50. You know what? I have seen that, probably a rental that my family threw on one day, and I, you know, I checked it out. I think it came out when I was in high school, so maybe like 10 years ago? More than, it was 2011. Even more than that. Okay. So my title that I wanted to bring up for today's 50th episode is none other than 51st Dates. Yeah, obviously. How could we not? Let's talk about Drew Barrymore, not the song by SZA, the actor. And we're also talking Adam Sandler. I almost said Sandler. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking Adam Sandler and, of course, the gorgeous, gorgeous penguins that exist in that movie. Um, so let's, I'm going to pretend right now that we have a listener who has never heard of 50 First Dates. So here's the synopsis for you, okay? Um, I am, uh, I'm a love interest, okay? And I decide that I want to just cruise on in my Hawaii Jeep and meet Adam Sandler and go, hey, I kind of like you. We're kind of hitting it off. You're hitting on me. Let's go on another date. Oh, shoot. I have amnesia. And now when I go on, now the next time that I run into you in the city, Oops, I don't know who you are anymore. So we have to have our meet cute all over again. And you might not play your cards right. 
I might not even be looking your way. But nevertheless, we have maybe not 50 confirmed first dates, but plenty of first dates that really fall in place for both Barrymore and Sandler to make their on-screen romance believable. It is such a beloved film from my childhood. I just remember checking it out countless times with my family. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's more on like the raunchier side because it's like Sandler. Is it a happy, what is his production company called? A Happy Madison. Is it a Happy Madison film? Yes, yes it is. Lovely. Um, a Happy Madison project and uh, a beloved film at that, like I said before. So Drew Barrymore, Adam Sandler, 50 First Dates. I'm a fan. I enjoyed it for a long time. It has some problematic things about it, but like also Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler are just really charming and I'll take them in most things. Did you manage to find a second movie title with five zero in the name to highlight on this episode? We don't have time for this. We have important things like Five Nights at Freddy's. But getting to it, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which I had forgotten about until you literally asked me about this. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's three of those. So you can take one and then I'll take another. If only I had seen either of those entries. So why don't you talk to us about the Fifty Shades theatrical releases? Because, of course, I if you know pop culture, like, you know, the Fifty Shades that were like erotic novels um, re- written by E.J. Uh oh, uh, E.L. Jane. E.L. Jane. Um, and so then they were turned into movies. We had our star Dakota, not Dakota Fanning, Dakota Johnson, hop on screen as the Anastasia. I think is her name. Yes. yes. And we have Bo, handsome, handsome Bo. I mean, Jared. No, no, no. Let me get his name. Oh, Jamie Dorman. Yeah. Jamie Dorman. That's his name. Uh, we would see him again in Barb and Star. So moving on, uh, Brandon, what are some points that you let you take away as like value from the Fifty Shades films? I will say the first movie, which is the only one I've seen, it looks pretty good. Um, Seamus McGarvey shot it, who's an amazing cinematographer. And I like what he does with the lighting and the kind of the shades of gray, if you want to call it that, but like how he addresses color and like what he chooses to show and not again. It's not a good movie. The performances are, you know, as wooden as it gets, and it's not, frankly, sexy at all. But what it does try to do, I think there is some merit in that first movie. My very last one, which is my only my second one, I couldn't really piece together many titles for this, was 500 Days of Summer. Brandon, have you seen it? Does that count? I, I, I would argue it does count, okay? It's kind of a cop-out answer, like I said at the top of this episode. But, like, five, zero, maybe another zero, 500 Days of Summer. Um... I got to say, I don't entirely remember what this movie's about, but I was so impressed with myself for remembering the title and making it fit this category. But if I had to guess, I would say Joseph Gordon-Levitt um, and your very own new girl, Zoe Deschanel, they tell a story of romance where this guy, it, it's from the perspective of uh, Gordon-Levitt's character, and he really believes that all of his ducks are in a row for falling in love and getting this woman to fall in love with him only to realize that it kind of was never that. And that was all in his head. Like people are individuals and they aren't just there to like fit your picture. So when that doesn't happen and his world kind of uh, like falls apart, she's absolutely still fine because it was never like this um, end game romance for her. Like it was for him. Am I kind of telling you the gist of it, Brandon? How do you remember that film? If you've seen it, because that's what I am like piecing together. So it's funny that you say, it's funny that you talk about it the way that you do, because I've number one, never seen it and always confuse it with Little Miss Sunshine. 
of all movies, Little Miss Sunshine. I wonder why. I, I don't, they came out around the same time. They had kind of similar marketing campaigns where it's like the flowery poster and the vans of Bohemia. I don't know why. And I've seen Little Miss Sunshine. It's terrific, but it's all, I almost guarantee you it's not 500 Days of Summer. I will say with Deschanel's role, you know, it, it reminds me of like the happening where I know that she's there and I like that she's there, but sometimes she fits her role a little awkwardly to the point where I don't even know if I can trust who she is in the movie because I'm still figuring out if she knows who she is in the movie. Um, yeah, I'll have to, maybe I'll give it a rewatch sometime, but yeah, 500 days of summer. If you're a major fan, let us know. But otherwise we have big things to get to Brandon. Yes. Very big things. Uh, we're going to be talking about, as I mentioned, Five Nights at Freddy's is here. We're going to be talking about some Superman rumors, some new trailers, a lot of big movies, a couple smaller movies. First and foremost, a little update on the mother of all topics from last show, which is going to be continuing for the foreseeable future. Uh, Writer's Strike is still going on. A couple big updates from this week. I was not able to encapsulate everything from the past two weeks. I deeply apologize. I've just been very busy, so I will try to encapsulate it again as much as I theoretically can, and hopefully you guys can keep track of all this. WGA, uh, most recent claim was that Writer's strike is costing California economy roughly 30 million per day over the last couple of weeks. That's roughly what the guild is announcing just as far as its overarching statements. There was also a release from the guild recently that talked about how much their residuals would cost in comparison to recent CEO rates. Uh, it would be significantly more easy to just pay them out, but that is where we're at right now. Also in the report, uh, Film LA, the Los Angeles County permit reporters, uh, they talked about how in the first week of the strike, Filming permits were down 70% from that time this past year. I believe it was literally six or seven TV permits that had been approved uh, by that time. So they've gone significantly down. And based on the math, it has seemed to have gone even more down in the weeks uh, since. Los Angeles, New York, those protests are continuing to go on daily. You can find more information on that on the the WGA website. Chicago protests are also beginning as well. Uh, Lana Wachowski, of course, one of the masterminds behind the Matrix movies. She was among the people speaking out, uh, saying, quote, this is a excuse my language, this is a goddamn emergency. I'm here to say enough is enough, end quote. Uh, also in some of the entertainment shutdown news, uh, Andor, uh, that series creator, Tony Gilroy, who was the series writer, had stepped back to a producing role be- because of all the strike news. He had initially voiced support for the strike, um, but said, I'm basically going to stick around in a production role. Then he got bullied around it, and now he's basically just putting Andor season two on ice for the time being. So that is going to be sticking on hiatus just until this uh, finishes up. Uh, as we mentioned last time, a lot of the late night shows, if not all of them, have shut down. More specifically, uh, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. He had initially voiced support for the strike. There were a couple of his workers who came out against him. And now, sure enough, apparently he is not paying his non-writing staff until the strike has wrapped. Uh, this was a whole thing uh, from Sarah Kobos, who is, I believe, his production coordinator on Twitter. You can go look that up yourself. Uh, but the biggest news of the past two weeks, and this ju- this literally just broke, if not this morning yesterday, uh, SAG-AFTRA. Uh, representing about 160,000 on-air and on-stage personnel, they have authorized to vote on a strike as well. Now, it does not mean they are striking. That just means they have the authorization to approve of a strike should the National Board of SAG-AFTRA do so. Again, this is actors, on-air hosts, anything of that sort. Um, the, the DGA, the Directors Guild, have not voted as well, but they are in contract negotiations as well. This could be a fairly big bargaining chip for the Writers Guild if they wanted to in future negotiations with the AMPTP. This is a quick statement from SAG-AFTRA via deadline. Quote, earning a living as a professional performer has become increasingly difficult with both inflation and the streaming ecosystem undercutting compensation. All the while, corporate profits and executive pay at studios continue to rise. Add to this the unregulated use of artificial intelligence and the burdens of industry-wide shift to self-tape. 
the outlook for working actors becomes unsustainable without transformative change, end quote. Noah, that was a lot of very scattered details that I tried to condense in the last hour or so. Did any of that stick out to you? Obviously, the sag after thing is the biggest thing, but what do you make of all this in the recent developments with the strike? These are dark times, Brandon. You know, scary is the inappropriate word because it's not like, you know, fear is here. Uh, and that the only reason that is is because we're not in that closely involved in the industry to where our pay is affected and our livelihood is affected. But to those whose livelihood is, it's it must be unnerving and um discombobulating to have your workplace go through this much of a shift um, and not even have your demands met yet. Now, this morning, I had a conversation with uh, a close friend of mine um, from uh, high school who has gone on and, you know, worked closer to these industries. And in speaking with them, it's like the closer you get to even some of these studio positions, you're able to understand both sides of the argument. Um, the The details they were sharing were like, you know, yes, writers are asking for more pay. And it it was so nice, I guess, for myself to get inside kind of the headspace of how somebody who works closer to a um a studio's position to hear how they regard the claims or the the um their concession. Um if we have this SAG AFRA strike now proceed and I believe it will. If they're, if they're bold enough to come out here with this statement and then all of the professionals following suit, um, fun fact, who is the president of the SAG-AFRA? It's none other than Fran Drescher. And so when you, when you put that kind of pressure on these studios, it's only a matter of time before they act and not everyone's, not everyone's going to leave that room happy. Of course they won't. It's a negotiation. It's a deal. I am, I'm kind of sweating to figure out what that looks like in the future for creatives who are entering the industry and for longtime creatives who have already established themselves. How is this going to affect the industry? Uh, that's why we want to stay with it. It is interesting just seeing what that is. And, you know, you were saying like, oh, it's not scary. No, it's very scary. Like, I don't know if you've been paying attention to Adam Conover from Adam Runes Everything, who has been one of the big vocal mouthpieces for the strike. He's been putting out a lot of shorts on TikTok and YouTube. And one of the main things was that, uh, the African-American Writers Guild was doing a protest outside of Netflix and they were, you know, dancing and singing and doing this whole thing. And he also made it clear with representatives of that guild basically being like, we're not having fun with this. Like, we're making the best out of a really bad situation. We're not being paid. We Many of us don't have insurance or, you know, any sort of safety net. And that is kind of the point of all this. Like, it's got to keep continuing. And if sag Opera does unionize, I, I pointed this out to you over a text mess, over our text chat, like someone tweeted out basically being like, yeah, if SAG unionizes and if WGA and if WGA unionizes, what's the DGA going to direct? And that's a very valid question of like, who's going to be left for studios to be able to put to work? So yeah, it's dark and scary and terrifying. And all we can hope is that the AMPTP has some kind of nerve to move forward. But considering I literally saw a comment from, I believe it was the Paramount CEO basically be, basically amounting to be grateful we're giving you anything. I'm a little concerned. We'll do our best to stick with it on the episodes come up, um, and we'll see how long it ends up being a topic of conversation, because uh, ideally this doesn't last long, but with the new statement coming out of SAG-AFTRA, then we'll just have to wait and see. Yes, and actually that vote, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it, will be in early June, so probably by the next episode, if not the following episode, we will know this decision. And with that being said, we're going to move on to our first proper main topic, that basically put the length of a main topic, whatever. Five Nights at Freddy's is here. Did y'all play that video game? I didn't because I'm a big scaredy wimp, but I know of it. 
Um, 2014 massively popular game spawned, I believe, five or six installments and a couple of spinoffs. No, I know you know more than this. I'll let you enlighten me in just a minute. Um, but yes, basically, very shortly after that game series was launched, Scott Cawthon, the creator, was trying to get a movie made. Chris Columbus was attached for a long time. Uh, Gil Keenan was attached for a long time. And now we have another brand new incarnation uh, from Bloomhouse that is finally getting released. First trailer finally came out this week based on the grid, of course, based on the video game series, the same name. Stars Josh Hutcherson, of course, from the Hunger Games movies, among many other things, as Mike Schmidt, a security guard who takes up a late night shift at an eclectic pizza restaurant, only to find out the animatronic animals are out to kill me and sing songs and potentially do other things uh, for anyone in the restaurant. Uh, it is directed by Into the Dark's Emma Tammy, as I believe was your quick hit a while ago, probably. I know we talked about this at some point. The script is going to be from herself and series creator Scott Cawthon, who apparently rewrote the whole thing during like 2021, which delayed the movie. It's a whole story about this movie being made um use elizabeth lyle uh blind spots mary stewart matcherson and shaggy himself matthew lillard will be part of the movie as well uh five nights of Freddy's releases i found this interesting in theaters and on peacock simultaneously just in time for halloween october 27th noah how much of halloween ends vibes is this giving you Oh my gosh, Brandon, don't taint this story I do. I had to. Okay, we're talking about a release that's coming both in theaters and on Peacock. Just the straight to Peacock release gives me bad vibes. But everything else about this topic, everything about this project gives me just guns ho. I am so ready. I am a big fan. Am I? I'm a fan. I'm a mediocrely sized fan. Um, <laughs> play the games. I've played, I've played the games. I've watched gameplay where I haven't. And I gotta say, like, the Five Nights at Freddy world and the lore is so, it has so much depth to it. And it's just amazing to see how far a video game that just asks you to monitor security cams and look for these animatronic animals moving about only for them to sneak up on you and scare like the life out of you. It's amazing to see what developed from that game. If you look back at, maybe they've remastered it by this point. I'm not sure, but you have somebody like Josh Hutcherson um, attached to it. And, and along with Matthew Lillard, this is, this seems like a well-rounded project. And I hope that if you're not excited about it now, this conversation is kind of gearing you up for what this movie could be. There was that film from Nicolas Cage. I think it was Wacky's or Wally's Wonderworld, Wonderland, something like that. Now, if there's one thing Nicolas Cage is going to do is he's going to attach himself to whatever project arrives in that inbox. And he says, yeah, I can do this, but I'm going to do this the Nicolas Cage way. And that's not even my impression of Nicolas Cage. That's just a random voice. Um, <laughs> anywho, this is not that odd departure from this franchise but was somehow associated with it i know i did i know the articles that i read associated it to it but i'm happy that now we have a official if you're the cool kid you say fnaf we have an official fnaf um, adaptation coming our way i'm absolutely ready if you want to check out a cool game check out uh you can even look at markiplier markiplier has a gameplay video of him playing five nights at freddy's sister location God, it's so good. And I'm so cringe, but I would listen to this song on repeat. It's called um, Join Us for a Bite. And it's so, like, animated. And uh, it, Brandon, maybe we'll play it after this pod wraps, but it's cringe. <laughs> Check it out. What... What do you, what can you expect off this trailer, Brandon? I, uh, we shared a lot of details here about production, but let's talk about the trailer itself. 
what do you think can be felt or expected for a project like this? We know it's a horror. It's interesting because I did watch the trailer because I'm a brave little boy. And for a minute, I was like, oh, this looks, you know, really kind of clever revisionist 80s kind of thing. And then, oh, no, the animatronics come to life. I thought, maybe I could watch this. There is one scene. It's the scene in the trailer where I believe it's either Hutcherson or Lillard in a field. And you see a bunch of kids like running and spreading out. And the second I saw that, I was like, no, this is a proper horror movie, isn't it? I don't know if I can do this. Um, But you're right. Like, I've gone... You know, I'm chronically online. I've done my deep dive into the Five Nights at Freddy's lore. It's weird. It makes no sense. But, like, I think in a movie format, you can condense into something really weird. Obviously, Scott Cawthon has a lot of passion behind this. I think style-wise, there's a lot to just the minute or so of the trailer that looks cool. It's always great to see Josh Hutcherson in this. I hope this gives him, you know, more opportunities in the future. So it's not much. It certainly didn't, you know, oh, my God, I need to see this. But I think for fans, it'll be a cool glimpse of, yeah, this will finally get made, and I'm excited to see it. Josh Hutcherson, what's in the future, man? Oh, yeah, because that show. Moving on. Moving on to our final major news topic for today. Uh, This is an exclusive from The Hollywood Reporter. This is not completely substantiated, but because it is from The Hollywood Reporter, we're going to take it as pretty likely. Um, Of course, Superman Legacy is on the way as the first feature-length film for the DCU. Now from The Hollywood Reporter, we have an initial batch of names that WB and James Gunn are looking for their cast of Superman Legacy. It is important to note, however, these are in the mix. They have not been giving screen tests. One executive called it, I think, quote, a chat room list, end quote. Um, However, again, multiple sources have confirmed this, so we're going to run it down for you guys anyway, because we like to speculate, and it would be fun. For Superman himself, our top candidate appears to be David Corinsweat. If any of you watch Netflix's Hollywood or uh, Ty West's uh, Pearl, he's been in a bunch of things here and there, but he is the top name for this. He's been in a lot of fan casting drafts. A lot of people have mentioned his name just, you know, on his good Midwestern boy looks. I don't know if he's Midwestern or not. Um, other contenders in the mix include Euphoria's Jacob Elordi, The Last OG's Andrew Richardson, and Grant Chester's Tom Brittany. Now for Lois Lane, Emma Mackey from Sex Education appears to be on the top of the list. She's going to be in Barbie as well in the next month or so. But also right behind her, uh, the marvelous Miss Maisel's Rachel Brosnahan, whose audition was described by one source as, quote, outstanding. So do not take her out of the mix just yet. Finally, for Lex Luthor, no list of names are attached. However, one frontrunner has emerged. Uh, it's Renfield and the great stars Nicholas Holt, who actually, if you remember, was previously the runner-up for Batman, which went, eventually went to Robert Pattinson in The Batman. Uh, those next screen tests are supposed to be offered in early June. Superman Legacy is still set for 2025, although, again, that writer strike delay might have bigger implications just depending on what happens. Noah, in our notes, you mentioned how big of a Hollywood fan you are. Would you want to see Corrin Sweat as Superman? And what do you think of these reported names? And how big do you think the field will become before we get the screen test next couple months? He already has that structured face that we got from Cavill that now can just be translated into our very own new Superman with corn sweat. Um, it doesn't look like a far departure from what fans are expecting or used to with this Superman likeness. Um, and I think that that's just a note to say they aren't trying to shake things up with who they're trying to cast as Superman. I did, when I read this headline, I did expect Nicholas Holt to also be like challenging that spot, but then I pictured Nicholas Holt in the role and I thought that's two very different likenesses for Superman. I wonder how they could compete. Uh, but actually he's not. He's actually going for us uh, being, being considered for a separate role altogether. Corn Sweat, I would love to see it. He, he has that, that youth, of course, too. Like Cavill is playing kind of like 
the Superman that is already in his heyday, like at his most potential. I wouldn't call his trajectory like very huge yet for Corn Sweat. I haven't seen him in major projects. Like you mentioned, Pearl and Hollywood. I think those are the two. I know he's appeared in that TV show, The Politician, because I've looked into his um, credits. That being said, I would be happy if he was attached to this project. I haven't checked out much of Sex Education, so I'm curious to choose to know what um, you may expect out of either Mackie's involvement in this or, because I haven't seen Marvelous Miss Maisel either, Rachel Brosnahan. What can they both do with a character like Lois? Amongst all of this conversation with who can it be attached to what, we have yet to see a, com- a confirmed credit so or a confirmed cast. So all of this is speculation, but it's warranted. Except we have, because James Gunn actually took to Twitter, I forgot about this, he did say there is one role that's been confirmed, and I'm very curious to be what that one role is. He didn't say if it's one of these three, but just one role. Ah, uh, boo! It's gonna be, um, it's gonna be Kate Planchett as the monkey. <laughs> Pinocchio crossover, yes. Pinocchio crossover, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Okay, but actually, I would watch a stop motion Superman movie. Enough live action adaptations of comic book films of comic books. Give me stop motion. Yes, absolutely. Adaptations. That's what we not. That's what we want. That's what we need. Thank you. Um, my only clear cut thought on this is number one, I did forget, I did fail to mention, apparently Nicholas Holt was being circled for Superman. His name has now been put into the Lex Luthor bin. I'm much more for that. Like if you had asked me, oh, should Nicholas Holt be Lex Luthor? I would have immediately said no. But then after reading this, I was like, oh, but he'd be great at it. Like, he would be a terrific Lex Luthor. He's such an actor who likes to go for the oddball role, whether it's, you know, Warm Bodies or whether it's, you know, Mad Max or, hell, even Renfield. Like, that's not a traditional leading man role necessarily. And he finds that, you know, really crucial kind of depth in it. I would love to see him as Lex. Obviously, if they want to go younger, I think that totally works. He's got, you know, the baby face going for him. I have not seen any of Corrin Sweat's work. I just know the internet's at least in the comic book community, has already decided that he is Superman, and I cannot stop them from thinking that. Um, I have seen season one of Sex Education. Emma Mackey is terrific. I would love to see her as Lois Lane. I have made the cardinal sin of not watching Miss Maisel yet, and I need to rectify that very soon. Don't know any other contenders for um, su- for Superman just yet. Idris Elba. I'm Black okay. Superman. That Black Superman film is still in development, so it could still happen. I did want to quickly say, as far as just for the pick right now, because I know ever since Guardians, and we will, you know, get to Guardians later on in the show, I know there's been speculation of, like, who will he bring to DCEU? I'm going to go on a complete wild ball guess. It's going to be Michael Rooker as Perry White, because Michael Rooker cannot not be in a James Gunn movie. And with that being said, we're going to move on to our quick hits portion of the show. Episode 50 is quick hits. That's the terrible jingle I made. It's the part of the show where we each take a topic uh, around a minute, minute and a half each. The timer is for a minute. I still haven't changed it up. I will eventually. But it's a topic that doesn't, you know, lend itself to a full discussion that we want to get out to you guys anyways that we're totally passionate about and want to get to you guys in a nice tight format. Noah, go ahead and start off for us. In three, two, one. It may not be 50, but it is 45,000 years ago during the Paleolithic period. Yes, I am talking about a brand new horror film. It is titled The Origin, and it takes place, I said it, 45,000 years ago. Now, what can a horror movie look like that has been 
dated so far in the past. I have no idea, but I'm so happy that it's coming to us. It is actually a planned for a 2023 release date around fall slash winter time. Um, who is it coming from? Well, we have a Bleecker Street and the, oh my gosh, I forgot. This is oh my gosh, I have to hurry up. Okay. Um, from Bleecker Street, the film is slated to come out in 2023 winter. And I'll read the synopsis now. The horror film follows a disparate gang of early humans who band together in search of a new land. But when they suspect a malevolent, mysterious being is hunting them down, the clan is forced to confront a horrifying danger they never imagined. What could it be? I have no idea. It honestly just sounds like another The Thing synopsis, but we're not going to pay attention to that. We're going to pay attention to some of the casting announcements that have already been shared. We have Sophia Oakley-Green. We have Chuku Modu, Kit Young, Iola Evans, Luna Wesi, Arnold Looning, Rosebud Malarkey, Tyrell Malanga. Now, if those sound like names that aren't really out there on these A-list titles, that's because hopefully we haven't seen them before and we're not exhausted by their appearance on our screens. I absolutely can't wait for this film to hit theaters. I am excited just to see what a concept like this can be translated into. Last thing I'm going to say is it comes from producer Oliver Kassman as well, who is behind the horror project St. Maud. If you're a fan of that, maybe you know what I'm talking about, but I think that there's good things coming our way. And over time. Okay, if we're talking about a horror film that is set so far in the past and we have an evil that has never been faced before, I'm just going to say, Prey already did it better. And I hope that Andrew Cumming proves me wrong because I want to see a new take on this idea. But man, it's going to be hard to beat out that that early horror action like picture that landed in both of our top tens from 2022. And I'm talking about Prey. It was in my honorable mentions. Honorable mentions. Urgh, damn, I thought I had you're that close, one. You're close. Brandon, Although, sorry. I was just going to say, it can't be worse than 65. Oh, let's not talk about 65 dot 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 million years ago. Brandon, over to you for your quick hit. On to mine in three, two. So this is rather interesting. There were a couple of trailers that we couldn't get to this past week. Uh, Mission Impossible, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, which literally dropped the first trailer this morning. A lot of big things coming out. And then there's The Creator. Uh, this is Gareth Edwards' return to cinema uh, after, if you saw Monsters, but more importantly, if you saw Rogue One, aka the Star Wars movie. That was way back six, actually seven years ago now. Jeez, I'm old. Um, it was its first trailer this past week. The film stars John David Washington, of course, from Tenet, uh, Black Klansman, a lot of other things, as a special forces agent tasked with hunting down the supposed architect of an advanced AI in the future that could end the world as we know it. Timely. Uh, this marks Edwards' first, again, brush with the big screen since 2016's Rogue One. Uh, that film's producer, Kiri Hart, uh, co-writer Chris White, and cinematographer Greg Fraser are all rejoining him here, alongside fellow cast members Gemma Chan, Allison Janney, Ken Watanabe, and, oh my god, Sergio Simpson, you're also in Killers of the Flower Moon. Like, you're doing a proper acting career. Like, good for you. I'm a huge fan for him. Um, this was a similar trailer to the one shown at Cinemacon uh, that got rave reviews, uh, including a deadline piece that referred to it as, quote, Blade Runner looking like child's play, end quote, which is a bold statement. Uh, this hits theaters September 29th. I know I've gone slightly over time. Uh, it, it looks incredibly visually bold. I like the story. I like John David Washington a lot. Um, yeah, it looks super cool and interesting. I hope we get more to it. It is a September movie. I'm worried about it, but time. So as far as the creator goes, um, is this a project that you just, that you just started picking up traction for, or is it something that you've been paying attention for a while? In a similar way to everything everywhere, like, you know, when we go through like the movies and development lists and it's like, oh, Gareth Edwards is doing a weird sci-fi movie and uh, John David Washington is attached. That's neat. But I hadn't heard anything about like it being concretely announced, let alone for this year. I I can't believe it's coming out in three months. Um, It looks completely done. It looks terrific. Like there's a couple of scenes in it where you'll go, 
that's definitely the guy who directed Rogue One between like the scale and the color palette and everything. And yeah, I, I'm excited to see him direct again. That's going to wrap our quick hit portion of the show. Brandon and I are now moving on to our movie review portion of the show. We're going to spend a lot of time here, comfy in our seats, planted on our floor. We are talking Guardians Volume 3. Yes, you might be aware we already have a spoiler review out and about ready for your listening. Uh, we've created an abridged version here for your ears to enjoy um, our own ratings and kind of catch-all comments. That way, if you still haven't made it out to the theaters yet, you can listen. For now, let's talk Guardians. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. From myself, it is going to be a strong 8.5 out of 10. I am so proud of what James Gunn has delivered to the big screen for our latest MCU edition. Uh, I love all of our characters and the journeys that they have um, endured up until this point and what lies ahead of them for this new film. We didn't go heavy into action, but this movie, while it while it doesn't have the big big bombastic end game action sequence there's one at that that they include at the end that is so stand out and so just cinematically pleasing regardless of what was real and what was after effects i'm like i don't care this looks cool i love this it looks new and i can't wait to you know watch this over and over and they they give it momentum and i'm so thankful for a story that is the runtime that it has it picked up and it moved and I was right there with them from beat to beat. I found myself engaged and maybe it slowed down at once, but I couldn't even recall because it didn't even happen that long. Thankful for the characters, thankful for the music. And this holds itself to be one of the best trilogies. Um, whether you want to look at it from the MCU angle or whether you want to just look at it at action adventure movies that um, have comedy, action, heart, so much heart. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Vol- Volume 3, eight and a half for me. I heard a, lo- a couple of critics who I really admire say that they didn't love this movie or really even like this movie. And that got me worried going into it for all of its flaws. And I do think there are some flaws. It doesn't, I think, overly commit to some of its best elements. Some of the needle drops I did find a little bit annoying. You know, some of the narrative stuff, as I said, does drag a little bit with the, hey, do jokes. This is going to be a funny movie. Guardians 3 does so, so much right as we have, you know, gone in this review about the characters are almost all fleshed out. The performances are terrific. We didn't talk about the visuals as well. In an era when the MCU is being dragged for a lot of its visual storytelling, I found the visuals pretty flawless here. Did you find Victoria's name on this? I was looking for it. I didn't see it. She is credited. She's credited. Okay. I was curious. Go on. But no, the visuals are flawless, but you're right. It's the story. It's the emotion. It's the heart. It's the grim and morbid story material that we try and really take the trust of the audience to the next level of how far can we push this? How much can we really grip you with these characters that 10 years ago were viewed as outcasts, nobodies, you know, they're Z tier comics characters. Who the hell wants to see a movie about a raccoon in a tree? And now we're at a point where all of us nearly cried for them. I know I certainly got fairly close. I know a lot of people did as well. For me, this is a nine out of 10. I think this is truly fantastic filmmaking. I think this movie also made me click for why he's leading DC and specifically going to Superman. He knows the idea of what it's like to be someone who isn't in the limelight, who desperately is trying to find a place, who is trying to do the right thing in the midst of a world that is not. And that's Superman. That's a lot of DC characters. And that's a lot of like our big superhero icons. And to take those ideas and put them to something like Guardians and give us arcs for Rocket trying to find some semblance of closure in his world to someone like Peter trying to find any sense of like love and, you know, um, communal connection to someone like Nebula who's just trying to find her identity and characters like that. 
I think we need more movies like this, frankly, in the MCU that don't just try and go on pure bombast. And this does have a lot of it, but it's not relying on just that. It's relying on emotion and heart and a mix of all the great things that make for really exciting blockbuster cinema. And in a year like this, where we've already gotten some pretty great blockbusters, this is topping it so far. Um, and yeah, I just was really impressed by it. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I'm sure many of you have. Yeah, I wouldn't let any of the stuff dissuade you. I would sincerely go check it out. And yeah, that's Guardians Volume 3 in everything we had to say about it, except it isn't. Uh, Noah, is there any details that we missed in our spoiler review that just the people should know overall? Let's be quick about this, okay? We already have like an hour, 40-minute episode for you to go check out. Is Not it long, long enough. <laughs> There's always more to be said. Uh, you know, Brandon, after coming off of a rewatch from Volume 1, uh, I'm in the middle of my rewatch for Volume 2 as well. I just, I don't know. Like, this film does feel, A, like it came like way too late for fans of like the first and second expecting like kind of like a tie up immediately after, but it only falters in that consistency because of the grandiose nature that is the MCU. Like it's not that we forgot about the guardians until volume three. It's just that they were busy fighting Thanos in infinity war and then facing the repercussions of that snap in Endgame and saving half of um, the life in the universe. So it's, it's just, Odd place these three movies with that major iceberg in between two and three. It's different for a trilogy to to come across this way. Um, if you watch like Blade One, Blade Two, Blade Trinity, like those are so much more confined in their space in their worlds. Uh, but for a MCU trilogy, you can look at No Way Home, um, Far From Home, and Homecoming and feel the exact same way. Uh, but I think just reviewing the first film again, I missed that closeness i felt to the characters and how isolated they were in their story um as, by the time we get to three i think maybe gun was intentional in driving us back to the team but uh yeah i guess that was something that stuck out with me and and, and was of note if you haven't gave those old those old if you haven't gave those first two films a rewatch uh they're more than worth your time and they're on disney plus so use your time spend them check it out uh what has popped into your head since our spoiler discussion i realized amongst our discussions of the cast we didn't mention a bradley cooper uh bradley cooper is terrific in this he is absolutely brilliant in this i would love to sit down with him sean gunn and james gunn and figure out how the hell they planned out rocket's journey but also the coordination between the physical and voice performances because i think he is really the secret protagonist of all this he has the most clear arc he has the most tragic arc and bradley cooper's voice performance i'm sure that you've seen you know in recent weeks just the resurface of like him in the booth with like the fake gun and just trying to get really into character and everything but there's also the idea of just he's so immersed in this role and just so completely envelops this character without an ounce of you know uh, without an ounce of self-seriousness like always with a wink and smile and you know his voice and yeah i just think he's terrific like I said before, we didn't want to spend too long here expanding on the Guardians discussion. We do have a full-length spoiler review for you to go ahead and check out that is already available across our streaming platforms, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or RSS feed, wherever you're getting this. We are moving on to our streaming titles, okay? We checked out two of them. This is the first. It is Apple TV's Ghosted, starring Ana de Armas and Chris Evans. Uh, I learned after the credits rolled, we are also getting a produced by Evans picture. Uh, you've got a synopsis for us. We've got some discussions to get into. Go ahead and let us know what Ghosted is about. Dexter Fletcher directs Ghosted. Uh, if you don't know the name, this is the guy who stepped in to basically save Bohemian Rhapsody after Brian Singer was fired. Uh, he did Eddie the Eagle. He did 
uh, Rocketman just from a couple years ago. I thought Rocketman was actually pretty terrific. This, as you mentioned, stars Chris Evans, who also produces this, alongside Ana de Armas and a lot of other people from the screenwriters of the Spider-Man MCU trilogy and the Deadpool film. So it's very Marvel-esque, or at least it's supposed to be. We follow Cole, played by uh, Chris Evans. He is a, you know, salt-of-the-earth, good Midwestern boy farmer. He's, you know, working at a farmer's market. He meets Sadie, who is just getting out of, let's just call it, a bad relationship. Um, And the two kind of hit it off very much. And they spend the whole day together. They go to an art museum. They, you know, go to bed. And then, you know, Sadie has to leave for a work trip. Uh, Cole decides to do this grand romantic gesture at the behest of his family to, you know, show how much he means to her. So he goes over to London and tries to find her, only to find out that she is not ghosting him, like the title would suggest, basically just, you know, not commenting on any of his pictures, not calling him or anything like that. No, she's actually a secret agent, and she is on the run from Adrian Brody as a vaguely French uh, arms dealer who is trying to get back a sort of nuclear arms code. It's very vague. Um, but yeah, the two have been, needless to say, Globe trot around various places trying to get this uh, get this passcode away from them. Try to form some kind of relationship between one another and trying to uh, try to reconcile with each other's uh, personalities and whether or not they can actually function as a couple in the future. Noah, this has gotten a lot of flack recently. Uh, it's been called AI the movie. It's been called Russo Brothers Light. I saw one thing that was like, you know, James Bond if James Bond was made for five year olds or something like that. Just very harsh reactions. Um, but I like the trailers going into this. I like Ana de Armas and Chris Evans. We've seen them in movies together. I'm sure you had a bit of a similar reaction of like, this could be really fun. What did you think about Ghosted? Does it work as, you know, a spy movie, as a romance movie, as somewhere in between? And uh, yeah, just overall thoughts. Ana de Armas and Evans, a bisexual haven. Uh, but let's just talk <laughs> about like, what's going on here? Why am I hearing AI the movie? I can't move on from that too quickly. Like, why are people saying this? From what I understand, it's basically the thing of, you know, it's two big stars. And like, you look at the poster, it doesn't look like they're in the same room at all. And like, it's big special effects stuff. And it's globe trotting because they have the money to do so. And there's a lot of dialogue that doesn't really go anywhere. Like that kind of thing. Globe trotting, except they never leave studio, whatever the hell they're at. Um, I think that Admas and Evans are fun to follow. I think that their chemistry is... You know, I'm almost reluctant to say that it's really good because I don't know how you feel about it. But you know what? Your opinions are yours and mine are mine. That's why we have this podcast. I really admire them both individually. And here, placing them side by side um, across the table from each other. I like them. I like their meet cute. I like that they're kind of very aggressive with their personalities and don't realize like the tension that is lying underneath. I prefer this pairing over... Armas and her actual real ex-lover, Ben Affleck. But maybe that's just because the movie that they both starred in really tainted my perception of those two having chemistry. Uh, that being said, this movie is beyond corny. I think the spy plot, you know, involving this kind of doomsday genetic code that she has to hunt down and having this shtick about Evans being the tax man and them proceeding with that joke far too long. It, it comes across as very snoozy. And I think it's hardly a project that required these A-listers of which there are many. I think that there's opportunity missed. What would we have gotten if the story was yes, Sadie's character ghosting previous assassins, but now keeping them 
like, you know, that X that just won't get, or that not even the X, but you know, your old flame that just won't get the hint. I think that that's such a stronger picture and you can keep the cameos just as long, just spread them out, but you give us rapid fire of four of them and then they're gone. And I think there's such a missed opportunity there. So that part did not make sense to me. Uh, before I move forward, <laughs> Brandon, yes, I talked about how the plot was just a snooze fest for me in particular when it wasn't the cutesy romance. Because what can I say? I I, I enjoy that stuff. So when I watch that, I go, oh, it's so cute. Like, look at them. They're fighting over a cactus. Oh, my God. And then <laughs> the second part, Doomsday spy plot, I don't care. And then I talked about the A-lister. So you go ahead. I think we've talked about this before, how, like, there is absolutely an audience and there is absolutely a space for movies that, you know, you can put on in the background that you can pay half pay attention to and be like, I like these characters. You know, they, they function well enough. The movie paced well enough. And, you know, I, I can enjoy it for just existing as is and helping me deal with my life. And I think to a lot of people, Ghosted is functioning in that as evidenced by it's apparently sky high ratings with Apple TV. Like it's apparently a thing where just a lot of people are watching and enjoying. And you know what? Fair enough. As I said, I went into this wanting to like it because I like Ana de Armas. I like Chris Evans. I like them at least in one movie they've done for each other. I love them in Knives Out. I don't necessarily love them in The Great This is not a good movie. I, I'm sorry. This is not a good movie. It's actually quite a bad, quite a lazy movie, actually. And it's not to say that there is not stuff on effort than there. I will actually go as far as to say as for you, you know, you were talking about how like the spy stuff doesn't really work, but the romance stuff kind of does. I'm on a similar track. I don't think the romance stuff works either. I just don't think they're given proper space to breathe. Like there's the whole scene when they first meet at the farmer's bark. And I don't know if you noticed this, they keep panning back and forth between their faces. Like, ha Oh, hee hee. Like they keep panning back between their faces up to tell us like they have a spark. They definitely do see how cute they are. And I was like, okay, this is the kind of claustrophobic nonsense that just doesn't let the characters breathe. And it keeps doing that. Like not just during the farmer's market, but like when they're in, you know, when they're in Pakistan, when they're in France, like, Wherever they are, the camera just kind of bounces back and forth towards them being like, see how she's hot? See how he's hot? They like each other because they're hot. Um, and that's not to say they don't have chemistry. Like there's a scene where like they do like a really cute race up a pair of stairs or like there's a scene towards the end when Chris Evans has to help Ana de Armas take down a bad guy on like this restaurant kind of thing. And it's fun. Like that kind of stuff I think works. But it's so far and few between in a movie that is horribly paced like the first half hour to 45 minutes is so horribly slow. And then it gets to the spy stuff and you think this is really going to ramp up. And the spy stuff is so plastic and so just fragmented and doesn't, isn't really shot all that well. And it sucks because Ana de Armas can do action. Chris Evans can do action. And they're just kind of putting these, you know, big green screen, you know, things where they hang off stuff or run through stuff. And it doesn't feel. I never felt it as believable as those first 45 minutes desperately wanted me to. And the fact that neither part worked, I think that's this movie's biggest sin. I hear you, and I want to add to this dumpster fire. And so I'm going to talk about Adrian Brody. Adrian yes. Brody is in this, but unfortunately, his villainous role is immediately outshined by our earlier villain in Tim Blake Nelson. You know, surprise him like Nelson, the bug guy in the beginning was so much more compelling. And I thought diabolical and evil and fitting for like this goofy, what, what I think was meant to be like a goofy, oh, rom-com. She's actually a spy kind of action movie. Uh, 
they try and keep these action pieces action pieces so large that I think they lose the you know it's not enough just to have Evans in the background going whoa whoa ah, what is it like it, I'm reminded of pictures like films like Night and Day with Diaz and Tom Cruise Killers Catherine Heigl Tom or Ashton Kutcher and the better one of the collection in my opinion at least of uh, the bounty hunter like this is such a a hard line to navigate where you have one of your love interests really being like the action like gritty heavy person and then asking their like more so innocent minded juvenile mind love interest to tag along with them on their adventure like sure they always lock down i think the initial moments of we have to have them meet we have to have them be uh we have to have the chemistry be believable but then after that first action sequence they really don't know what to do with the balance of these characters in these environments because they're not really supposed to work in these environments yet we keep getting movies like this um here it just it, it wasn't a pairing that i think it wasn't a script that worked for the, the the vision and the idea they were trying to sell. And so I, I also agree with you. I don't think this film has uh, much value in it outside of, Hey, while I make dinner, let me put on something that is a little flashy and I can look at beautiful people. And that's the other thing, right? Is that you mentioned, you know, Tim Blake Nelson, who I got a kick out of too. I thought he was pretty fun in this. How but- fun is he? And keep the bug guy. Like it's a, it's a, it's a gimmick for your villain to, stretch like you see all those containers around him and i believe he has a world like in his mind in this character but then you introduce brody and i would say the most villainous thing he does is like put one of his henchmen to death for reasons yeah and it's it's similar with the bugs and you're like oh no that guy i don't care about just killed that other guy that i don't care about great but the thing about that is that the tim blake nelson thing is emblematic of you know because i've heard some people say like Well, it's kind of a subtle parody of action spy movies. Like, it's not meant to be taken super seriously. You know, it does what it does, and that would be great. But you know what parodies do? They make you laugh. I didn't laugh a lot at this movie. I Like you say, I didn't like the cactus joke. There's the glorified cameos that I got more angry at than anything. Like, that's supposed to be a big thing. I was just like, ha-ha, isn't that weird that they're in this? And I'm like, no, that's stupid. Um just by the time you boil it down, it just becomes noise. Like by the time it got to the big ending sequence, when, you know, slight spoiler, like Chris Evans is starting to take a bit more agency of himself as a character. I should have been really happy for him. And I didn't care. And the laughs didn't matter. And by then I was like, just get me to the action sequence and we'll be done with this. It's so funny to me, the similarities that exist between those titles that I mentioned and this one, like you need a scene where the, you know, the, the juvenile of the two rescues the, you know, killer. Yes. And then they wake up on the beach and I'm like, that must be in the formula for how these things are meant to work. That happens in this film. And I'm not surprised at all. Cause I'm like, okay, now show me something new. Like, okay, now where are we going with this? Okay. She's just going to do her assassination job on the side. And he's totally cool with it. He's like, <laughs> that's just business. Uh, okay. But not much else. Yeah, I'm ready to go to ratings if you want. Here we go. I'm going to be short-breathed on this, short-winded. Uh, this is a solid, probably less than, 3 out of 10. Uh, but because it's a streaming option, I am going to say go ahead and, like, you know, throw it on, catch out your stars. But what makes it a 3 for me and not less is 
those early scenes I think do work. And if you want to sit with this and not take it too seriously, I think the action sequences will kind of bore you. You're kind of be like, okay, here's another one we're going through. Got it. Uh, if you're looking for the Armas in a much more like explosive type of action environment, just stay seated, stay patient. Ballerina is coming and we can't wait for it, but this is not, it's, this is not a preview of it, a tease or I don't know where this exists, but for now it's on Apple TV plus check it out. If you so wish Brandon over to you. Apple, listen to me right now. I know you have the money. I know you have the resources for it. I know you have the production capabilities for it. Don't do a sequel to this. Because I know some of your producers are in the corner going like, we got ideas for that. Don't. Just don't do it. Um, that being said, for the movie, um, you're right. Anna de Armas and Chris Evans are just so naturally electric that they just have to have some sort of chemistry with one another. Sometimes there are some action beats that work. Um, a few of the supporting cast work. I didn't mention Mike Moe is in this as Adrian Brody's number two. I found him more interesting uh, than he was, and I kind of liked him in this, and I hope he gets more. Also in the credits, uh, going to similarly bad movies, you know who the cinematographer for this was? Salvador Totino, a.k.a. the guy who I praised from 65. Whoa. Yeah, it's like he's out to save every bad movie. Dude, I mean, of notable shots from this film, I can't name too many. I have one, and it's the scene after the bus chase with the flaming tire. That's it. Okay, that I remember, because I thought, why are we lingering here? Insert ro- insert tire rolling on fire. <laughs> that scene is not great, but it's cool. It's something. And a lot of this film is just nothing. It's just insert dialogue from, you know, again, talented screenwriters. Like, I like, you know, I like Eric Summers and Chris McKenna and Wernick and Reese. Like, I like their style. It doesn't work here. The pacing is bad. It doesn't fluctuate well between stuff. Yeah, the three out of 10, and that feels way too... You know what? No, two and a half out of 10. Because, yeah, no, this is not good. I would not recommend it to most people unless, unless again, you absolutely just need a two-hour thing to put on the background to watch some action sequences and maybe laugh at a couple of cameos because they are there and people will like them. So, again, as Noah said, Apple TV, go nuts, don't. We are now moving on to Netflix's recent release. Jennifer Lopez, it is the mother, Netflix noise. All right. I have the synopsis here for you, so we are diving right on in. Uh, Any details missed or uh, glossed over, I'm confident my co-host here, Brandon King, we are going to highlight in our larger discussion. But here's what the movie's about, all right? The mother. We open on a informant for the FBI or something like that. Uh, they're hooded. We look at their face. They're gorgeous. They're Latina. They're J-Lo. Mi gente Latino. And so the middle of their meeting, they are interrupted uh, before she can really provide the real information, the real juicy bits. Uh, we don't really understand why this meeting is going down or what's to be settled here, but we know gunfight, a siege ensues. Many people get shot, get killed. It looks like a lot of the agents that are surrounding the mother, uh, as she's credited on IMDb, uh, are, are killed save for one. It is Omari Hardwick's agent Cruz. And so throughout the debacle and fiasco, it is only her and Agent Cruz that are left breathing. And it is revealed here that she is pregnant. And through the course of events, she is stabbed and she has to deliver the baby. She wakes up in a hospital and it's going to be difficult. But yeah, we have to call her the mother because I don't think that she has a name. So the mother does what she must 
by leaving the safety and care of her, you know, now born child, or she might be unborn at that point. She leaves her in the care of Cruz because she knows that she can't really be a parent to this child. So she has to step away and she has to, you know, mourn her loss, but be with her own self. Because if she were to keep that child, it seems like the child just was going to be on a life of targeted years pass and she's called to action and dun, dun, dun motherhood. Uh, years later, she learns that a target has been placed on her daughter who is now in her early teens. Um, it's a progression that turns into a, you know, establishing relationships with lost family, um, putting them to the test when the going gets tough. It's a bit of a trial in like an action spy movie, but I think it wants to take its major swings in that relationship between uh, estranged mother and daughter who are learning of each other and of each other's intentions, um, where to move forward from about a third into the movie on. There's, I don't know if there's plenty to explore here, <laughs> but I, we, we decided we wanted to check out this film. It's JLo in action. Last time we got this, um, we, I don't know if you checked it out, Brandon, but there was the wedding movie with a shotgun wedding with her and Josh Duhamel. Yeah, I didn't see it. I didn't get around to it either. And that's more of like on the comedy front, but here JLo is delivering straight action. There's no beat here that is meant to be taken with a smile. Uh, the last film I would say that gave us this JLo would be enough. I would say where she had to really put on that grit that was called of her. Um, beyond that, we've had JLo primarily in uh, rom-coms. We've had her take on more of like, would you call it a thrilling drama for Hustlers? Oh, yeah, very much so. Very much, yeah. Okay. And she was applauded for that performance, and I, I think I'm there with them. I, I really admired J-Lo in Hustlers. I don't think that I could recognize her then. I, I'm still mad she didn't get a supporting actress nom, but that's just me. <sighs> Dude. Uh, but here we are, the film The Mother. What does it want to be? What is it to you? I And... I believe, based on our early discussion, you and I are on separate ends of this, possibly. But go ahead. Slightly. Um, we should quickly say, this is from Nikki Caro, is the director um, who did McFarlane USA, who did Whale Rider, and who recently did the live-action Mulan movie as well. So this is her first movie off of that. Um, also in this, Omari Hardwick as the uh, agent who she kind of has a reprieve with, who tries to help her daughter. Paul Racy from Sound of Metal pops up in this as a shopkeeper who kind of knows the whole deal, as well as Joseph Fiennes and Gal Garcia Bernal as the two men in her previous life who she's trying to get away from and who are kind of the instigators of the whole thing. I want to talk about this because, again, Jennifer Lopez has not been given really pure action drama debatably ever, but at least in a not a long time. And I was really curious to see what she can do, especially in a recent time where, like, it's, you know, Marry Me and, you know, Shotgun Wedding and all these, like, for lack of like second act, like all these like kind of freely comedy movies. And I want to see what she can do with something akin to Hustlers. And I will say this, she leads this and she totally owns it. Um, I really do like her performance in this. And I think going to your question of what this is, I think it's a character study. I think it's the idea of someone who has spent their entire life in one path, who has, you know, completely detached themselves from any other sense of humanity or morality and trying to bring themselves back to you know whatever that sense of humanity or longing is and uh, we should also mention lucy paez is the daughter in all of this 
And their relationship is really interesting for a time, as you say, like kind of the pacing of the movie really throws it all off. And once we probably dive into it a bit more, there are some holes you can easily pick at it. But I find as just purely a character study, I found it pretty interesting for the most part as an action movie. I think Nikki Caro has a pretty good grasp on what JLo can do as a physical performer, what action sequences kind of benefit her. And this is from her production company. This is from her first, uh, this is from her first look deal with Netflix. So we're going to be getting a couple more similarly movies to this, but I didn't think this was all that bad actually. Huh? Um, I will be, uh, I'll be lighthearted in my, in my critique of this film then. Um, what really struck me as just jarring while I was watching this film was I think that it's very, I think that it's edited very poorly. I think that when yeah. we do get into our action sequences or just our, our movement throughout these environments, it became frustrating to watch it and just accept the fact that, you know, beyond a shot of the street or a shot of a park, give me like an open range view and then boom, I'm, I'm set with my characters. There wasn't a lot of time for me to understand how our characters got from place to place. And that's not a mark on editing though. That's a mark on just, I think, story design and, and whatever they, whatever approach they had to, um, showing their locations. But editing comes, I think, heavily in action. Like in our action sequences, you really care about the way clips are cut so that when somebody's thrown around another person's body, it's in a way that's believable for how a human body can move. But here, whether it's cutting tight corners or like fist to fist combat, it was hard for me to just kind of be connected to these punches or to really move with momentum with my characters. You know, this isn't, this doesn't take it, uh, the approach of giving you one shots of, uh, or what is, is it called one shots? Like one go. Uh, one take. This they, they aren't giving you one takes, um, which you know, extraction two is on the horizon. And I'm really I'm really looking forward to that because of the short clip that was released of the one take that they have. But that being said, here they they give Jennifer Lopez the opportunity, yes, to showcase this this character that is of interest to you, Brandon. And I just think that for this project, I didn't <laughs> it's just so funny that it comes from JLo's company because my note goes, this is not the project for JLo to showcase a range. Unfortunately, that's, that's my perception of it. This is a project that I understand can come from a, a actor and performer like JLo, but I, I pictured another performer really diving deeper into themselves and giving us more expressions and, and just honestly more from a character like this who is so torn between their connection to this under and other individual, even though they have not raised them or been involved in their life really whatsoever into this point outside of giving birth to them. I had trouble, uh, just getting comfortable with the editing and the, the locations. It seemed like they, they knew what they wanted their action set pieces to be, but they didn't know how they were going to get there. That is first one. And then I think secondly, uh, just because I had to, <laughs> I wish it ended differently. I wish that the tease that was given to us at the end really was what what carried it through to the finish. I think that that gives us a much more gutted close to this film, but they chose a sweeter payoff and I don't knock them for it. But in my experience, as soon as it looked like what happened happened, thought, my gosh, like it didn't redeem it, but it made me go, uh-huh. Okay. Like there's, there's going to be a conversation now about this film. For context, are you talking about the scene in the snow or in the parking garage? The snow. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
Um, but I, I'd love to hear you more, go more in depth, uh, if there's any <laughs> for you to extract from this film. Um, well, like getting to your point, like, you know, we had our action sequences, we didn't know how to get there. I think the original parking lot sequence is kind of emblematic of that, where like, there's this thing of, you know, this is early on in the film. It's not a huge spoiler where like the daughter is being, you know, set in harm's way and Jesse Garcia pops in there as like the lead henchman. But then there's a thing where like, she's up in the garage and they're all in the playground, like three to four stories below. And the way it cuts, because we need to get to a point where Jesse Garcia and she have an interaction, but she can't go down there. So the way they cut it is like, he gets into a van up through the parking garage in like four or five shots. Like it's insanely fast. And I remember just thinking like, oh, they're, no, oh, okay, they're, and they're, okay, now we're here. And it was that thing where they do it like three or four times during the movie where it kind of is emblematic of what you're saying. We're like, we need to get this confrontation and these moves, but we don't know how to get there. So just do some fast editing. That'll work. Another one was her escape on the motorcycle after yes. the, uh, in the field, there was um, an altercation and then she escapes on a motorcycle and we have Zoe, the daughter, we have her running for like a couple seconds, but somehow <laughs> the mother is driving on the motorcycle for like so much longer. She's like, grab my hand. And she like l- lunges her on top of, on the back of the bike. And I'm like, how far were you that any of this happened? Like, how did you not get shot? Like, I need this to be believable Um, in that parking garage sequence. I loved how they demonstrated how, um, you know, how intense the mother is with her weapon. Like yes. she uses the scope of her rifle to scope out the environment of what she's looking at, where her daughter is placed um, before the um, the kidnapping happens. And then the the quickness that she has of taking that scope and attaching her other gun pieces, I thought oh, like, I like this. I think that this works for a character like this. Um, but they didn't take many other chances to demonstrate, like, how, uh, you know, coordinated she can be in the field. And and I think if they had more, uh, I can't think of a word, but if they had, like, more gimmicks, gimmicky type of things for her to do as a trained operative in the field, then this movie would give her more to do with physically. Uh, because, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that emotionally they were she was reaching that point. I'm a bit of two minds on that because they establish in the second half of the movie that she is very much, there's a scene with her talking about Zoe about how a knife fight works. And she's basically the the sense of it is like, no, you just keep going. You have to just keep going. And there's a sense of like, for lack of a better term, because I can't think of any other characters right now, like a Michael Myersy kind of drive of just like, don't stop. Like you have one goal and just keep going with it. And I kind of felt that through all of her fight sequences were like, she doesn't want to stop because she has been trained to not see anything beyond the fight. And again, that's why I think Jennifer Lopez is so interesting in this. The problem is, again, no other character in the movie is that interesting. Like, maybe Lucy Pius is the daughter. Like, that's the one thing I might give it. Again, even that's a bit of a stretch, but like, Omari Hardwick is wasted in this. Uh, Paul Racy, who is trying his darndest to be friendly and sweet and cordial, but who isn't given enough screen time. And oh my God, dude, Gal Garcia Bernal and Joseph Fiennes are non-existent in this movie, and they shouldn't be. Like, they're crucial, crucial points. And at least Gal Garcia Bernal has, like, one moment that is really disgusting, frankly, but at least it's a character moment. Joseph Fiennes is just an afterthought in this. You know what I love is this line. Um... <laughs> are you thinking of the line where, you know, it's our conversation, and he's like, do you remember our safe word? She goes, we didn't have a safe word. Oh, uh, did you like that one? I, I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah. Do you like I said? We never had a safe word. <laughs> um, 
I I feel like there's another one uh, baked in there. That whole scene, to my point, is like, yeah, it's gross and sleazy, but and all that. But like again, Gal Garcia Bernal is someone who can have that kind of charisma in that scene, and he gets one time to do it in a two-hour movie. That you know, going back to my pacing argument, it's so weirdly paced. The idea of like, you know, she finds a daughter, she finds, you know, the two men in there, but then she has to go into hiding. And then finally, it, what we see in the trailer with her body with a daughter, that's in like the last 40 minutes. Like, it's so weirdly paced for a story and it doesn't have to be. And it's just that thing of by the time I got an hour in, I was like, how much longer is this? Oh, we're almost what? What is your reaction to that wolf scene? The early one? There's symbolism there. I don't know if it's good symbolism, but it's symbolism. <laughs> but there, there's, there's the symbols and they're doing the isms. So yes. first of all, the puppies are adorable. And I love the way that Zoe kind of keeps having that naivete of like, yeah, they'll be my friends. Ow, they keep biting me, but they'll be my friends. Like, I think that's kind of a pretty natural thing for a 12 year old to have. Turn this movie into the gray. After they get into the wilderness, turn it into the gray. She's already killed the, <laughs> she's already killed the like, the, the drug lord that was after her and the father. Is he the father? That, the that's fa- the thing. I, I will admire that they don't say which one is the dad. They don't. Um, and then, and hell, maybe she doesn't know because maybe it was like, not maybe that kind of situation. But turn this movie into the gray, and now she has to face off against nature's mothers. Put a mother bear against her, the mother of the wolves. Um, she kills Bambi's mom. And... I don't know. Give me another animal. Give, what, give me a mother fox or something. But that, I think, is a different movie. It's fitting for the cover image. Look at this cover yeah. image. Look at this cover image of her looking like Lara Croft in the movie or in the video game Rise of the Tomb Raider. Also, and I know your friend um, Danielle would be with me on this. I hate her hair in this movie, Brandon. I hey. hate it. Yeah. It is so long and unnecessary for a combative like trained person like this when then when she's wearing that jacket or a beanie she has all of her hair out and i just think to myself that is so like inefficient (laughs) it's it just doesn't make sense i think for a a, an operative of this nature but it's j-lo with long hair yeah she looks good but it makes me roll my eyes she's beautiful she's she's she i am ready for ratings if you are yeah let's go to ratings uh for me I am more positive than you, I think. I will give Jennifer Lopez her flowers for this. She is giving a lot to this role, both physically, emotionally, and and psychologically. I think the mother as a character has... I think the mother as a character has some pretty interesting things for Jennifer and Nikki Caro to be able to say about, you know, the strength of motherhood, the determination of motherhood. Like, that is interesting. And, like, the action sequences, I think, are pretty well done. Um, There are some nice things with the daughter here and there. But again, everything else about this movie just lets her down. And that's probably the biggest disappointment about it. Like, there are pieces of this movie that can really work or could be really poignant and effective, or it could just be really exciting. Like, there are ways to readjust this movie, which, by the way, is from very prominent good screenwriters. You know, uh, Misha Green, who did uh, Lovecraft Country, Andrea Burloff. Green! Yeah, who, Andrea Burloff, who did Trade of the Compton. Like, Peter Craig, who did The Batman. Like, this is a good writing team. And this is just not really that, although it really tries to be. And one performance does not save a bad movie, but I did find enough in here to the point where, despite its maddening pacing issues, I was still invested. So I'm going to sit here and say a five out of 10. 
And again, that's only because of I admire the action, I admire the performance, and I admire what it is trying to be. And I would watch it again because I do think it flows by good enough, but I think there is better material with this that could have been me. So hard for me not to interrupt you every time you said enough, Brandon. I really want to come <laughs> be like, enough, enough. Stop uh, talking, you dummy. <laughs> no, never that. Okay. So here we go. Um, I want to be nicer, but I honestly have no reason to. Uh, yeah, you're going low with this, aren't you? This is a uh, rod devices is on its way. This is a one out of 10 for me. I think, oh. I, I, and it's almost like hilarious to go that low, right? Um, this is a one out of 10 for me. I think that this wasn't the star for this project, um, but she has that backing. Um, like, I feel obligated to say something nice, but we know who JLo is. You know, get on the floor, literally. Um, but that being said, if there was a story to carry this type of lackluster lead, then... Maybe I could have been more on board with it. Like I said, turn it into the gray. Um, I am the, I am the king of, oh, they should have done this. Maybe I should write my own movie sometime, but, um, you know, have her become obsessive with her daughter. And after she kills the person who's hunting them, have her be the new evil. You know, she wants to keep her daughter so close that she ends up being the threat to her daughter. Uh, give us a character study like that. And I think that that'll engage a viewer like myself all the more. Um, there's not like exciting music to carry you beat to beat. You don't even know how you're being carried beat to beat. Cause you're kind of just there. Um, Yes, they they don't make use of the stars like Hardwick, Bernal, uh, Fines, uh, Lucy Paez. I'm one. I'm curious if this is introducing her. Um, I I'm wasn't sure. I wasn't upset with her performance. I did actually find uh, I didn't find her like at all distracting. I actually liked how she was used in this film. Um, that's not saying much though, because you know which what she's asked to do. I see a different film on the cover than what I got, and it's unfortunate, but this isn't a recommendation for me. One out of ten streaming on Netflix. Um, you're looking for a JLo project, um, and I say I have had enough. I couldn't help it. I'll give you this. You're looking for a JLo project. Go watch Hustlers, because not enough of you did. We are now going to transition to another big, bombastic, explosive release that a member of the pod here at Plot Devices got the opportunity to see ahead of schedule. So we are really excited now to toss over. I'm saying we as if it's like me, myself, and I. But Brandon, I'm tossing over to you to talk about Fast X. Let's talk the latest installment in the Fast tri- in the Fast franchise. And from what headlines I can read thus far, maybe the first in a trilogy of a wrap-up? I only hope they're kidding. But Brandon, let's talk Fast X. Fast 10. This is the 11th installment in the Fast and Furious series, if you count Hobbs and Shaw. Following up on F9 from two years ago, all your favorite action boys and girls are back in this. Uh, Vin Diesel, of course, as... Totally not superhero Dominic Toretto. Uh, you've got Michelle Rodriguez. You've got Tyrese, Ludacris. Um, who else? Jason Statham is back in this. John Cena from F9 is back in this. Yes, John Cena is in the Fast and Furious franchise now. Uh, Jordana Brewster is in this. Natalie Emanuel. Sun Kang is in this. Um, of course, with a bunch of new entries as well. Uh, you probably heard the legendary Rita Moreno is in this. Brie Larson pops up in this. Alan Richson. And of course, Jason Momoa as the antagonist, who we will get to. Um, this is, this is directed by Louis Leterrier, who apparently Justin Lin, who is the longtime director of the franchise, had a lot of disputes with Vin Diesel. 
a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes of this scope. Look it up. I'm not going to give you the information on it. Um, but Louis Leteria stepped in. You might know him from his work on the Ed Norton Hulk movie. He did the Transporter movies with Jason Statham. Oh, look, he's in this. That explains why. Um, so yeah, this takes place, uh, sometime after F9. I'm not exactly sure how long. Um, quick refresher if you need a uh, quick refresher if you have no idea what I'm talking about for this. Uh, Fast and Furious started out as, you know, Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, rest in peace, uh, going at it in street races. One's a cop, one's a, you know, the street hood. Are they going to be able to be friends? And they do. And they become family and they start a huge family and everything is cool and lots of things happen. Um, at, it turns into a heist movie at one point, it turns into a spy movie. Now we are here in Fast 10 and I can finally get to the freaking story. So Dominic is raising his family. He has a young son now. Uh, in Brian, who he named after Brian, obviously, played here by Leo Abello Perry, who you might have seen in the Cheaper by the Dozen reboot. Things are going fairly well for him and uh, Letty, played by Michelle Rodriguez, up until Jason Momoa shows up. Uh, in case you need a refresher from Fast Five, uh, because the film does it and it didn't actually happen, um, the villain from that movie had a son that we never knew about. And that son was Jace Momoa. Dun, dun, dun. And he blames Dominic for everything, for you know the death of his father, for the stealing of his fortune. And now he's coming for Dom and the family and you know, things happen, uh, explosions and chase sequences. And I'm going to tear your family apart limb from limb. And yeah, there is a lot in this movie. The thing about it, I need to be clear about this because I don't think I've said my history on this. I did review F9 two years ago for ASU Odyssey. And on that, I kind of made my history with the franchise clear. Basically, I had only seen the first two. I went back and watched them all for that movie, including Hobbs and Shaw. And it gave me, this is going to sound so like preachy, but it gave me perspective on like what this franchise is and its mythology and everything. And I really deeply appreciate it. Like not all of it is smart, but the way that F9 attempted to tie in the madness of this franchise between the retcons from Tokyo Drift to the high stuff of F, uh, of Fast Five and kind of make it this really very MCU superhero-like mythology, I thought was really neat. And as Noah said, this is at least the start of a two-parter, if not a three-parter, depending on what Vin Diesel wants to believe. So take that for what it is. This is very much a part one scenario, and I have had to reconcile with that. Um, but yeah, how is the movie? If you are a fan of this movie, you know what you are getting into with this movie. It's big cars, bigger action, you know, bigger personalities, you know, some jokes here and there, and it's all about family, and that all ties it together. And if that shtick has worked for you, and you've been paying attention to this franchise, I still can't totally say it works, which kind of sucks. Um, again, going to Fast 9, which is not a perfect movie by any means, it has substantial problems with it. But the thing that I liked about F9 was that it felt like at least a somewhat cohesive effort to after, you know, Paul Walker passed away in Furious 7 and after, you know, Fate of the Furious tried something different. F9 was really trying to collect all of these characters into on itself and really try and solidify what this new era of Fast and Furious could be at its most big, at its most explosive and at its most expansive. And credit to Fast 10 it is expansive. Like this is a movie with at least 14, if not 20 characters who have some significance to them. And that can be really tedious. I shouldn't be enjoying knowing not as much about this French as I do, because it's not asking you to. It's asking you to, you know, look at the set pieces and look at the designs and look at the, the character relationships and look at them all at face value. It's not asking you to go deeper. 
except that it is because F9 clearly established they were trying to go deeper. So it becomes this movie where so much is going on. There's a point about 20 minutes in where, you know, Dominic goes off on his journey and his son and John Cena go off on a journey, which is a whole different movie. And then Ludacris and their whole gang go off on a different movie. And, you know, Charlize Theron is back as Cypher. She goes on a whole thing in this movie. And it becomes this thing where you're dealing with six to seven storylines all at once for a movie that you would think is trying to be, you know, one thing, big cars, big explosions, big fun. And it's trying to be this bigger thing. And God bless Louis Leterrier. He is trying. And the action sequences do kind of work. I'm sure you've seen for the trailers that, you know, racing is back in this. I would not get your hopes up. The racing is exciting, but it's a very small part of this movie. But he does manage fairly well with the action sequences. But because the characters are so spread out and are given such very different arcs to deal with, it also makes for a movie where you can't really latch onto them. With the exception of one, Jason Momoa is a lot of fun in this. I talked to like five or six people after the screening and they pretty much had the concurrence of this is to Joker as Batman is to Dominic Toretto. And they're not wrong. Like Jason Moa is essentially playing, you know, a really flamboyant, frankly, queer coded, you know, kind of heavy, you know, cynical antagonist kind of figure. And he's having a time with it. Like he's the one part of this movie who I felt like was a fully fleshed out character within the context of this movie. You could also argue that Dominic and his son are, although again, because they're on different paths during the movie, it becomes very difficult to tell. So again, before I get too way off topic about this, I will simply just narrow it down as this is a big, bombastic, fast and furious movie that is not what you think you're going to get. It's a lot of world building that's kind of coalescing on itself. And because it's a part one, I know, you know, I know you heard a lot of people as well when June part one came out of like, well, it's great, but it's not complete. This is what they should have been complaining about. This is a part one that feels completely like a part one. And by the time it ends, I literally, but about five or six minutes before it ended, there's a big action sequence. And I felt, okay, so another like half hour of this. And then probably two minutes later, it ends. And I went, oh, you're committing to this, aren't you? You really are. So it becomes a thing of there's so much to loop yourself around. But if you are not wholeheartedly committed to this franchise, I genuinely don't know if you're going to like it. So it's disappointing on that level. It's disappointing as a longtime fan. And yeah, it, it's a mess. I was really hoping that this was a film that someone like myself who has not watched this, has not been part of the family, uh, respectfully, disrespectfully, <laughs> since Fast Five. And so to learn that it's not the most approachable, I mean, Fast X, you have your own, like, it just seems like a departure from what has been brought into the franchise up until this point. Like Fast X feels like a defining staple in the franchise. Like this is its mark that it's planning to leave, its flag that it will leave in, in cinematic history, pop culture, whatever. But to learn that it's not that is really unfortunate. Um, I have a couple questions that I wrote down. You know, I haven't seen it, but I know I'll knock it out soon. Even though I haven't seen its its previous entries, I know that this is a movie that if people are talking about it around me, I want to be able to engage. So if you could provide the next plot point or major tonal shift that takes this franchise in a new direction, what would you do? Seeing the trailer and then seeing the Transformers Rise of the Beast trailer, I'm confused which is which. Um, what I'm asking you is... Is there something that's needed tonally to dramatically change how this franchise has been going for a while? Or is there a plot point that you would like to throw in there? Like all of a sudden, I don't know, 
they are thrown into a situation like Fast and the Furious during Red Dawn. Like for myself, I haven't even seen this film, but I know it's another globe trotting fast movie. So what I would say, um, is of course I'm going to go watch this and probably have a different answer. But for me, you want to make Fast X memorable. Put them in an isolated environment and see what your characters do. Like give them in, give them a situation where they are forced to be locked down. Give them a quarantine and have them be locked down for the bulk of this film and solve their problems based off of, you know, the, the skills that they have as a person, regardless of like their vehicles and their weapons and all of their tech. Like, nah. Maybe that's always been the movies. Maybe that's what the movies became. But I think you needed a shakeup in order to make the Fast X this new peak in what they can provide. So that's my question to you, is what do you throw in there? It's interesting you say that because there are at least two points in the movie where they almost go that route. and Or at least they reference that they could have gone that route. And I think, I'm not going to predict Fast 11, but they could do something like that. And if they did as long as they are able to round up their characters again, because at this point, even by the time the movie ends, the characters are so spread out and they don't feel like there's a sense of consistency to them. And yes, that is the point because Jason Momoa is breaking up the family one leg at a time. Ha ha. Like, yes, that all works, but it also makes for a movie with, again, 15, 20 characters that I wanted to care about in some degree that I would jump around and not see for a half an hour, 20 minutes at a time. And, I just wound up forgetting about it after a while. So I would kind of like to see, you know, some kind of bottle episode kind of movie where you put them all in a room without their cars, without their weapons, and just see if they can, you know, maneuver themselves out of it. Put them on a pirate ship and see, <laughs> put them in a museum, like whatever kind of Smithsonian, they or they discover like an ancient ship, throw them at the end of Uncharted and have them like navigating that ship throughout the waters. Um, we can't go too long, but I, I do have another, I have a couple more. So I'm going to make them kind of like a joint question. Okay. As much as I want the family, quote unquote, to love what they do, Brandon, in your experience as a viewer, is anyone tired? And, you know, besides fans like myself who have kind of stepped out of the picture until now, do you think anybody is tired here from the main cast? And if they are, who is the series missing? Who from our A-lister, BC, your fan casting, who are you throwing into the family to wrap up this trilogy in a way that is um, amplifying to the fast vision? I am going to stay pretty much away from this question because it has some spoilers about who. No, because, okay, because, okay. Because, okay. Because, because I've mentioned a lot of characters who are in this movie. I have not mentioned every character who is in this movie. And yeah, as a fan, when those characters pop up or don't pop up or are established their fates, you do get a reaction out of that if you feel that. I'm going to check it out uh, after this pod is released. And I know I'll have some of my own thoughts to share possibly on the next episode. So we'll have to wait and see. I saw a really terrific tweet earlier from Ryan Matsunaga, who basically, I think, clarified to me finally what this is. Quote, the trajectory of the Fast and Furious series makes a lot more sense when you consider that Vin Diesel is obsessed with D&D. It's a totally logical escalation to start pulling petty crimes before eventually baffling before eventually battling world-ending forces. And I was like, you know what? That actually makes all of the sense in the world. I'm there, like modern setting D&D with cops and robbers. <laughs> and look, everyone makes fun of the fact that like they're you know using muscle cars to pull together helicopters and all that's impractical. And like- oh, Fake death, fake out on the deaths, revives. Fake out on the deaths, which I'm not going to comment on. Um, but yes, there is the idea of this movie being- so impractical and so ludicrous and 
you know what? To its credit, I've seen a lot of people who are genuinely diehard Fast and Furious nerds who love this thing. And you know what? All the power to them because I think the core tenets of this franchise, you know, even with Paul Walker's absence, even with Justin Lin not directing, even with, I think, Chris Morgan not writing it anymore, it still does feel like Fast and Furious. There is still that thing of, you know, out there, what can we do with stunts? What cars can we use to their most out there ability? What can we do with these characters that feels the most, you know, at face value, emotional, but when you dig down deep is really melodramatic, but we're not going to focus on that right now. Like those elements are still there. Problem is for me personally, I found that this as a story was a mess as a part one is so blatantly trying to launch you into the next thing, you know, for character wise, unless your name is Jason Momoa, unless your name is Danielle Melchior, unless you're maybe Vin Diesel or the kid, I really didn't care about the characters in this movie. And for a movie with so many characters, with so many things going on, with so much effort in trying to make the Avengers Endgame, and that's what this is. It's trying to be the Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame of Fast and Furious. And part of me really admires that. I really, truly do. But also part of me is watching this, you know, monstrosity for an hour, hour and 10 minutes and going, where are you going with this? Because at least Dune Part 1, whatever you want to say about it, had a concrete ending with a character arc. And this is not that. So how do I wrap this? Fast 10, I'm going to give a four and a half out of 10. And it's only because of disappointment. Like, I, I know it's how can you give the mother a stronger score than this? Because the mother at least had a character who I liked and cared about and a central performance that was good and like action sequences that knew how to use her. This was basically saying, let's do the set pieces and worry about everything else later. And yes, I know that's what Fast and Furious has always been. You know, don't come at me. I know what this franchise is and I like what it is. But at the same time, I have expectations for it. I expect better of this. I'm sure in, you know, a year, year and a half time when Fast 11 comes out and completely rectifies all of this, maybe I'll be having smiling with a big old grin on my face. But like right now, yeah, if you're a diehard fan, it's in theaters. Why not? Otherwise, I, I can't ask you to give more money to this franchise. And with that, we have wrapped episode 50 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode. And for 50 episodes and our directorial debut series and our spoiler reviews and just all the madness we've been putting, like genuinely, seriously, for a moment, thank you all so much for tuning in for as long as you have either. If it's just this episode, if it's just for one review, if it's, you know, liking a post on Instagram or Twitter or non-existent Facebook or, you know, anything like that. But just thank you for interacting with us and showing us love in whatever way you can. Um, we, we genuinely want to make this community with you guys and build this up as much as we can. And, you know, Noah and I love doing this. In fact, we've been able to survive each other for 50 full standalone episodes covering who knows how many movies, how many news topics. It is an absolute pleasure and a joy to be here with you guys and be with my co-host and just, you know, do what we can to have fun with all this because that's what this is about. Um, if you want to follow us further and help support the show, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, at Plot Devices, uh, leave a review and a rating like it does help boost the algorithm and again gets us to more people gets us to more audiences and helps us build the community and also i didn't know this there's a portion where you can actually leave a comment about the show not just a five-star rating so please do so like oh your mic quality sucks we don't like your opinion like to do this like yeah leave it for us it does help us develop the show and we do want to help it be developed more and more uh you can also do that same thing on twitter and instagram at plot devices pod those are our social medias plot devices podcast is also our tiktok where we'll have content up very soon, hopefully. And uh, yeah, all that will be in the description. I want to thank my wonderful, truly amazing co-host, Noah Guzman, for 50 episodes of this nonsense. Noah, thank you so much, as always. 
where can people find you online? Uh, what do you got going in your life? What are you enjoying and uh, all that? I recently tapped back into an old favorite of mine, a franchise in itself. It's a video game titled Borderlands, except this latest entry is uh, Tiny Tina's Wonderland. So that takes it all into a fantasy setting. Uh, it's a first-person shooter, and I'm a big gamer, so I've been having my fun dabbling in that recently. Um, beyond that, uh, just watching movies, doing work. Finding life. <laughs> um, honestly, filling out my schedule with some approaching concerts has really brought some like even more anticipation into my weeks ahead. Uh, it's always great to look forward to a movie. And now I'm, I'm like doubling down and looking forward to concerts that are on the horizon. So uh, if you want to follow me, you can follow me on my Instagram at Guapo Guzman. You can follow me on my Twitter at Noah's Plotting, or you can check me out on TikTok at Noah. I'm him. I always love saying it. Noah, him, him. Check it out. Uh, and many thanks to my co-host here, Brandon King. 50 episodes is quite the feat and couldn't have done it without you. Uh, the hard work doing the edits time and time again. Um, you are our most valuable asset and you gave us the space to do this kind of stuff. So I'm very appreciative of you and I have a lot of fun. So here's to 50. Cheers. 50 cheers we don't have any drinks but we'll pretend we do um that being said you guys can follow me on twitter and instagram at the movie king 45 that's twitter and instagram at the movie king 45 follow my band at Cablebox underscore music that's Cablebox underscore music our debut single wish is out on all audio platforms if you want to give us a shot and uh, you know let us know what you think again all that information will be in the description as well if you want to give it a shot for that being said for episode 50 of plot devices my name is brandon king that is noah guzman and uh Oh, God, I need a tag. Um, You're still here? It's over.